Ah, as we come now to the Word of God, if you'd like to read with me, we're now in Exodus chapter 11. You can just listen as well if you'd like, but if you'd like to read, we'll be in Exodus 11. And as you turn there, before we read, would you please pray with me? Almighty God, we know that the unfolding of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. And Lord, we know that we need that. We need to grow in our understanding. So would you unfold your word now that this is not an act of me, but this is your supernatural word. Would you imprint it on our hearts? Open our minds and hearts to be able to see and to believe. Guide us now by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take this morning all of Exodus chapter 11, which sounds like a lot, but it's, uh, it's a smaller chapter. Uh, and in fact, I even want to back up and catch the end of chapter 10 for reasons which we'll talk about later. But I'll begin here in chapter 10, verse 28. Then Pharaoh said to him, to Moses, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people, that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the hand mill, and the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he, Moses, went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. 
This is the word of God. Now, what the Lord has already foretold to Moses and to the people way back in chapter 4 is now coming. We've arrived here on the doorstep of the 10th and final plague of Egypt, which is the death of all the firstborn, man and beast. And as we look at this scene this morning, this will not be a simple sermon. There's not three tidy uh, sermon points to follow. Uh, There's not just an easy question and, and answer structure. But we will lean into a particular theme which we see established here. And that theme is something I'll tell you in a moment. Uh, First, to get to the theme, we have to look at some of the context here. You may have noticed as we read through this that what we're seeing here is not the actual plague itself. This is just the announcement, Moses announcing the coming plague. So even though time-wise this plague is coming soon, in fact, just in a matter of hours, the narrative stretches out the plague's actual arrival. So here we're just seeing this very long announcement about it. And, and, and in the next chapter, we see in the next large set of verses uh, the, that the actual plague is not there either. It's all just a preparation for the plague where we see the first Passover being prepared. So the narrative here just kind of lets the plague dangle in the air. Moses throws it out there and just lets it hang like a piano dangling by a string. And so then for us as the reader, we have to sit here then on this cliffhanger. Not because we don't know what's about to happen, but because we do know what's coming and we have to wait for it to come. What even adds to the suspense of the scene here is that we realize that this scene is the very last time that Moses and Pharaoh will see one another alive. After all this interaction back and forth, this is their final meeting. If we follow the flow of the narrative here, you might notice that in the first verses of chapter 11, verses uh, 1 through 3 here in our text, this is actually an interruption of the event. It's a sort of a side that happens. So in those first three verses, we see the Lord telling Moses, reminding Moses really of a few things, that this plague will be the last straw. This is going to be the plague that causes Pharaoh to drive them out. We also see him remind them that the Egyptian people will not be bitter against uh, Israel, but will actually honor them with favor. They'll even give them their back wages in the form of silver and of gold. And we're also told that Moses himself will be seen as very great, not only for the Israelites, but also for the Egyptians. He'll still be a man. The man Moses is very great. He's not a god but he will be seen as very great, a messenger of God. All of this, the Lord is not telling Moses in this very moment. It's things he's already said. So if you're reading in the NIV translation, they translate, I think rightly, the Lord had said this to Moses. It's something now inserted here as a narrative, as a sort of summary of all the things we've already seen. It's sort of a parenthesis in the events. The conversation that's really happening in this chapter is between Moses and Pharaoh. And boy, it's a spicy conversation. 
By the end of the previous plague, the ninth plague, the section we read just at the end of of chapter 10, it seems that Pharaoh knows by this point that he has been backed into a corner. It seems that he knows that the Lord is greater than he is. And so as often happens when people feel helpless or cornered, as a sort of last-ditch effort, Pharaoh puffs out his chest, puts on a big show, and he threatens Moses. We heard it in verse 28. He said, get away from me. Don't see my face again. The day you see my face, you will die. Now, there's an empty threat. Uh, Because, you know, Pharaoh has had no power all along to even stop the plagues of the Lord. I don't know why he thinks that he would have any sort of power over the servant of the Lord here. But he makes this threat to Moses anyway. Moses, get out of my sight or I will kill you. And Moses' response to that threat is one of my favorite lines in the whole narrative. Moses says, as you say, get out of my sight. As you wish, Pharaoh, this will be our last meeting. You won't see my face again. And that's true. The text doesn't tell us what Moses actually did here. But in my head, I imagine it this way, if you'll allow me a little bit of poetic license, that Moses says, all right, as you wish, I won't see you it again. And, and Moses shakes his head and just kind of shrugs. And, and he turns to leave the courtroom of Pharaoh and begins to walk off. But before he gets out the door, he stops and begins to feel the heat of anger, even, welling up inside of him. And he turns back to Pharaoh with fire in his eyes and gives the final words that he will ever speak to Pharaoh. The text then does tell us, it's starting in verse 4 all the way through then, this is where he tells Pharaoh about the Lord's final plague. He tells him about the firstborn will all die, that all of this is coming, that the string that's been holding the piano up all along is about to be snipped by God. All of this time, Moses has been saying to Pharaoh again and again and again, let my people go, let my people go. And now his very last word to Pharaoh ever is, I will go out. Verse 8. I will go out, and he went out from Pharaoh. For the last time, the text says, in hot anger. There's a spicy ending to their interaction. Now, that's the scene as we see it play out. The key component that we need to make sure we don't miss here, and this will be the theme that we'll focus on for the rest of our time, the key component is this, the theme of night. Night. Where do we see that here? We've talked in previous weeks 
how these 10 plagues are set off together in bundles or cycles of three. And the beginning of each cycle of three is marked by a command from God to Moses that Moses would go into Pharaoh. Specifically, he says, go in in the morning. I want you to get up, get dressed or whatever the track things go with that and go into Pharaoh in the morning. So the first plague, Moses, go into Pharaoh in the morning. Then we see the blood turned to water, the frogs and the gnats. Moses, go into Pharaoh in the morning. Then we see the flies, the disease, and the boils. Moses, go into Pharaoh in the morning. And then we see the hail and the locusts and the darkness. And if this pattern were to continue, it would be time for the Lord to tell Moses to go in in the morning again. But this time, it's different. This time, it's not a start of another cycle. This time, it's the beginning of the end This time, there is no in the morning. In fact, if we read carefully, we'll notice that there hasn't even been a morning in Egypt for several days. This incident comes on the tail end of the ninth plague of darkness, and that plague has not yet lifted. So in Egypt, there is still no sunshine, there is still no light, there is still no sun. So when, Mos- when Pharaoh calls Moses back into his courtroom to meet again for what will now be the final time, they are meeting in the darkness of night. And in that night darkness, Moses then tells Pharaoh about this final plague, the death of the firstborn, a plague that is going to come in the midst of that same night. Look, he says it in verse 4, Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight, I'll go out in the midst of Egypt. And when he says this plague is coming at midnight, we're not necessarily thinking about the clock striking 12. You know, this isn't Cinderella whose carriage is going to turn back into a pumpkin when the clock strikes a certain time. I mean, if we think about it, time at this season in ancient Egypt is mostly kept with with, uh, sundials and shadows. So time virtually stops at night. There's no time keeping. So midnight here is a reference to the very deepest, darkest point of the night. The final plague will come when the night is at its blackest, and that is meant to tell us something. Have you ever heard the saying, maybe when you were a teenager, heard the saying, Nothing good comes after 10 o'clock. Maybe if you're in a strict house, nothing good happens after 9 o'clock. The number change, but nothing good happens after dark. You know, you hear mamas saying that to their teenagers that want to go out and do all these things. And that would have been especially true that nothing good happens after dark in these ancient cultures. A scholar Uh, Stuart comments on this particular situation, something that's helpful. Listen here. He says this about their experience. One must understand 
how ominously darkness threatened ancient peoples. We can be active at night because our homes and places of work can be cheaply illuminated. They closed up their cities at night. They barred their courtyard gates. They locked their house doors. People abroad in the nighttime were assumed to be criminals and typically, in fact, were. We feel relatively safe during the night, even away from home. We have various means of communication to call for help that's readily available, but they were at the mercy of common thieves and bandits when away from home at night. And unless they were well-armed and in large groups, they were easy prey for those who used the night as a cover for evil. They understood that the darkness was essentially chaotic, a kind of enemy of the safe and the good. We might think of it as just another phase of the day, but they considered confinement in darkness as a grave punishment from God even a sort of sometimes purposeful force, and they associated it with death. We don't think much about it at all. Darkness for them was a whole different kind of experience than even we can relate to. And so in the Exodus account, we're getting, yes, a report of the facts of the events, that it's, these things are actually occurring in the nighttime and not in the day. But this night element is also used for rhetorical effect. It's sort of punchy symbol to help us see that things here are descending, unraveling into disorder and chaos. We see a similar sort of thing in many places in the scriptures. So especially in the Gospels, you'll remember, in the hours just before Jesus is crucified, at the Last Supper, where Jesus is sitting with his disciples and his friends, Jesus drops a bomb. One of you will betray me, he says. So, of course, they all ask each other, who, who, not, not me, him, who, who, who's going to betray you? And Jesus said, it's the one to whom I give this bread. And then he gives it to Judas, and we're told that Satan entered into him then. And Jesus tells him, what you're about to do, do it quickly. And after Judas, is le Judas leaves, John, the writer of that gospel, then tells us at the end, and it was night. We see a similar sort of thing happen just a few hours later, soon after when Jesus is on the cross, that at the sixth hour, or at noon, Darkness covered the whole land for the next three hours until Jesus actually breathed his last breath. That in that time, midday was upended and becomes midnight, becomes the deepest night, that this dreadful drinking of the wrath of God against sin is happening in the dark of night. Now, of course, these are the facts of the events. They did happen factually under night or under darkness, but the authors are not just giving us a kind of weather report. Oh, look, it's dark. Or, you know, a captain's log. Oh, captain's log, it happened 12.01 a.m. No, he's telling us that things are descending into chaos, underlining the night to us to show us in a sense that everything has become disordered that the God who said, let light shine out of darkness has now snuffed out that light. 
This here is a sort of de-creation. It is that serious. So Mama was right. Nothing good happens after dark. Now, at this point, some people might say to me, Nathan, wait, hold on. Isn't there some sort of good happening here? I mean, isn't all of this part of God's good and perfect plan? And there's some truth to that. There is a good effect here. There is a good outcome here. Both the death of Jesus and the Gospels and the death of the firstborn in Exodus, both of those things are a means to a good end according to the plan of God. They're the means by which God will deliver his people out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. There will be light out of this thing, but we're not there yet. The sun is still very far away in this scene. In this scene, it is not light. It is not even dawn yet. This is in the middle, the darkest part of the night. So what's the Christian supposed to do with something like this? I think the reality that the narrative lingers here forces us to stay here, encourages us to learn to sit in the darkness. I know that sitting in darkness is often uneasy and uncomfortable, that our our knee-jerk response in darkness is to quick find a flashlight or turn on a little bit of light as quick as we can, but I'd urge us to push back against that reflex for a moment. We need to learn to sit with this and let our eyes adjust to the dark. And once we acclimate, then what do we see here in the night? Two things we see briefly, and then we'll be done. Two things we see in this dark. In this dark of night, we see one the effect of sin. We see the effect of sin here. What is about to come this very midnight in this account in Exodus is described here as a great cry throughout all the land, as has never been before or will ever be again. There is not a single house in the land of Egypt that is not without loss, from the household of Pharaoh to the household of the slave girl. And we'll unpack that a bit in some future weeks. But for now, it is enough for us to see that sin has brought this darkness. Sin has brought this darkness. And we always, always underestimate the detrimental effects of sin. It is always worse than we think. Our sin is often enticing to us. It might be pleasing or fun for a time. Sin might feel very natural to us for a time. Sin might even make us feel better or, you know, I'm just letting off a little bit of steam. I feel better now for a time. But what we see here is that sin is actually ticking that time away, moving us closer and closer to the stroke of midnight. 
We know the Christian who puts faith in Jesus is saved from the guilt of sin. Praise God for his grace and mercy. We're saved from the guilt of sin, but do not let that truth, let us take sin any less seriously. It is foolish. It is foolish to sit and play underneath a piano dangling by a string. So look here in this dark and see the effect of sin. That's the first. The second and last thing that we see in this night is we see the arrival of God. We see the arrival of God. And that would be a different experience for different people. We'll see that more in the coming weeks. But for the Israelites, for the people of God, this is not just a night of darkness. It is a night of another kind. We see it later in, the, in chapter 12. It's described this way in verse 40. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Listen, it was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt so that this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. It's not just a night of darkness. For Israel, it's a night of watching. It's a vigil. It's a night to be vigilant, to keep the oil filled, to keep the wicks trimmed, to be prepared to see what the Lord is about to do within just a few hours to rescue his people. There's a sort of anticipation that comes with this that takes discipline to learn. Because it's not easy to wait in the dark. We see an example from David in the Psalms. He wrote many Psalms, but in Psalm 27, he begins the Psalm with a famous line, The Lord is my light and my salvation whom shall I fear? Mm, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? That's true. And even though it's true that the Lord is his light, still David is going to experience plenty, plenty of darkness. Just in this psalm, he mentions that false witnesses will arise against me. Evildoers will assail me. Army encampments will happen around me. Even my father and mother forsake me, he says. There's plenty of darkness to be experienced. So how do I reconcile that the Lord is my light and yet I sit in darkness? By the end, this is where he lands at the end of Psalm 27, verse 13. He says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. David learned that in darkness. He learned how to do that in darkness. So for the Christian, even at the stroke of darkest midnight, make it a night of watching a night of vigilance, because the Lord is your light and your salvation, so be strong. 
take courage and wait for the Lord to come. And he will come when morning dawns. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we know that you are life for us. You are the light of men and the darkness cannot overcome you. Lord, we do trust you, but help us to trust you more. Teach us to be watchful, watchful against our own sin, but also watchful for the coming of the Lord in victory. Lord, we long to see that. Teach us to be faithful in the midst of darkness so that we would see you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.